You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everyone. I am getting us started this week, and I am so excited. Okay. So... I already mentioned this to Kirk, Victoria. Uh, uh-huh. This is a two-parter. So this is the Ooh, first time dun, dun, dun. where you will know what I am talking about for next week. Okay. Mm, it's a little bit different. Um, and I, I just, it was such a big like topic, I decided to split it into two is all I decided to do. So this is, I decided to tackle a question that I get asked all the time, especially in the season that we're at right now or during the winter, it gets hap- it happens all the time, and mm-hmm. it's at least at least hilariously to me, it was this fact was told by Olaf in Frozen Two. Okay. <laughs> so what I am talking about today is turtles breathing out of their butts. <laughs> okay great this is gonna take you two episodes wow two episodes of turtles breathing out of their butts yes buckle up everybody Uh (laughs) um so scientifically speaking i'll be talking about cloacal respiration and next week i'll be talking about anaerobic respiration so these are both mechanisms that turtles use in the winter time because the question i get asked all the time i'm sure both of you do too what do turtles do in the winter Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's a lot of misinformation there's so many things there. that there is um i think for is, for our listeners who don't live in minnesota we should clarify that turtles have to breathe air and lakes here freeze in the winter so yes yeah. I, I <laughs> sometimes there are yeah. two feet or more of ice on yes. those lakes which makes it real hard to get to the air exactly um so in so a lot of turtles, uh, it really truly depends for freshwater turtles is, is what we're going to be focusing on is freshwater turtles. Um, so many turtles during the frozen icier months, they do a lot of various things to survive. Like everybody, a lot of people that I hear like, oh, turtles just, they hibernate over winter. That's just what they do. They burrow down in the mud <laughs> or whatever, and they stay there and then they come out in the springtime. There's a couple things wrong with that. There's a few <laughs> things wrong with that. Because what exactly they do depends on the location of the turtle. If their pond that they or lake that they're on actually completely freezes over. What the temperature is of the winter. What kind of, what species of turtle they are. The location. All of these things depend. It can vary. And because they vary, the behavior of the turtle is different. Right. So... For simplicity's sake, we're just going to focus on the ones that stay underneath the ice that you both were talking about that happens in lakes and ponds over our colder months during the cold season, uh, which we like to call winter here in Minnesota. Um, (laughs) So, Correct. 
it's several months. So it, for turtles, that's still a very long time to be going without air. Um, do either of you know how long a turtle, like a freshwater turtle, can hold their breath? Uh, you know, I was, I used to work at a certain unnamed, very large aquarium <laughs> that has a tunnel through it. Mm -hmm. I say unnamed partially because the name has changed many times. Uh, and we had in our freshwater lake habitat, a turtle mm -hmm. that would go down to the bottom and then come back up. And I know that we would see it under underwater for 40 minutes at a time. But I don't know that, that that's a, uh, you know, and that's now. a, a data, data point of one. Yeah, I don't have that factoid <laughs> uh, at the top of my, to the tips of my fingers, at hand. Right. <laughs> Whatever the phrase is. All of those, yes. Um, so your data point is actually pretty good, Kirk. On average, freshwater turtles can hold their breath anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes. 45 minutes oh, generally cool. being about the maximum for freshwater turtles. I clarify because uh, saltwater turtles or sea turtles, they can hold their breath for up to an hour. Um, wow. So they go a little is bit Is that longer. because, do you, do you know, is that because generally they're larger? Part of it is they're because like they're dissolved larger. dissolved oxygen in their blood? Or? Yeah, part of it is because they're larger and they have a little more lung capacity for that. But the other okay. uh, reason for that, or but they they still don't generally stay underneath the water for an hour. They'll go and surface every like four to five minutes because they can. Because I mean, so they it's can. Open yeah, yeah. Air. Um, now in the winter time, freshwater turtles, uh, even though they can hold their breath up to forty five minutes, when there's ice covering or the air is below freezing, ectotherms or cold blooded creatures cannot actually allow themselves their body temperatures to get at below freezing temperatures. Um, <laughs> they will, that would be because bad. Because they would, ice cube. freeze. They yes. would freeze, and they yeah. would, <laughs> like Victoria just said, become an ice cube, and they would die. Um, pretty much an ectotherm would be, whatever the air temperature or the surrounding temperature, that's what their body temperature is. So if they go below freezing, then their cells actually start freezing and that would be bad um so they can't go above the ice or anything during winter time because they would freeze so it's, uh, it's, it's below freezing it's right. below freezing so there are some ways for that they are able to stay below the ice where the water stays a more consistent temp temperature and thus their body temperature is a more consistent temp all winter but they still need to be able to breathe in that several months of not being able to go up. So what they do is they, excuse me, they use cloacal respiration, um, yep. which means that they are able in thin blood areas of their body that have a lot of blood vessels, um, like say their armpits around their mouths and their cloaca or their butt. <laughs> um, they can run water, have water pass by those areas, and it quite literally, very similar uh, to osmosis, they can take the dissolved sure. oxygen out of the water, 
as it passes by that thin barrier and into their blood vessel and be able to respirate that way to be able to um, continue to metabolize and have some energy through the winter. In some ways, it's it's similar to what happens in the lungs, actually, because yeah. the oxygen goes into the lungs and then there's a very, very thin layer of tissue between the sacs of the lungs, the alveoli, alveoli and then the blood vessels where oxygen and carbon dioxide are exchanged. So exactly. it's kind of like the same thing this... happens, but less efficiently through and the just... butt. <laughs> Through their skin <laughs> and their butt. Is it is it similar to how like essentially gills work as well? Then, yes, I would say yes. Just because um, that is generally the basic idea behind gills is is taking dissolved oxygen out of the water. It's just like Victoria said, way less efficient. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and d- if you don't know ahead. what a cloaca is, listeners, it's just it's the all-purpose hole. Poop pee. That's a good way to put it. Poop pee, mating, eggs. Yes. What dinosaurs have. Yeah. It's what chicken's have. All the birds and most birds. Amphibians, reptiles. Reptiles. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we talked about it. I, I definitely talked about it at least once. It's come up. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we we talk about cloaca from time to time. We do. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is even though they're going through and they're respirating. Um, and they are using that cloacal respiration, they don't need as much dissolved oxygen as they would during the summer months because as their body temperature gets lower, their metabolism also gets slower. They have lower energy needs, so they have lower oxygen needs. So that allows them to go longer without being able or without um, needing a lot of oxygen. Turtles tend to not move a ton in winter. One of the advantages of being cold-blooded. Yes. Um, Many kinds of reptiles, like sea snakes, uh, turtles, and amphibians actually also do cloacal respiration, um, which I thought was really fascinating. So it's not just turtles that do this type of respiration. Um, However, if you have... If all of the dissolved oxygen gets depleted in that pond or lake because there's no uh, open air exchange of more oxygen coming into the pond because there's an ice barrier, mm-hmm. right? They swap to anaerobic respiration, which I will discuss next week. Intriguing. Oh. Bum, bum, bum. Dun dun dun. Uh-huh. Um, we're gonna take a bit of a break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Happy 2022, everybody. You know, 2021 was a tough year for all of us. We heard from a lot of you that the podcast really helped get you through the year. We know we had a record-setting December with over 1,000 downloads just in the month of December alone. So thank you so much for that. We really appreciate you as our audience. And we love that uh, our family here keeps on growing. Also, big thank you to those of you who in the last year joined the Society of Strange over at Patreon. That's the group of people who give money to help support the show and keep it going. You also get some fun bonus content uh, almost every week over there at Patreon. So if you haven't yet uh, checked us out, head on over to patreon.com slash 
Strange by Nature, to learn more about the, the society and how you can keep the show going into 2022 and beyond. So thank you again for a great year. We're looking forward to another one, and uh, we'll get back to the show. All right, folks. An unknown killer stalks the Pacific Northwest. Oh, my. Yeah. Bigfoot. Oh. Not Bigfoot. Oh. I... I have an idea where this is going. Okay. Let's go on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll see if you're right. Uh, I'm much. Intrigued. Oh my god. Much like the culprit in an Agatha Christie novel, the murderer remained undetected by hiding in plain sight, appearing to be unassuming and harmless, but concealing their deadly secret from investigators until now. <laughs> oh my. I am talking about Triantha occidentalis, which is the Western false asphodel, a wildflower. Uh, okay. You definitely not the story. I okay. Yeah. I want to know what you were thinking of. Tell us later. <laughs> I don't know if you did. Yeah. I'm... The, oh boy. the <laughs> you rattled that off just so quickly and so like beautifully, but also can you give it to us what? again? There. <laughs> <laughs> what what the plant is or my whole spiel? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Please. Okay. Oh. No. Gosh. Not the whole thing. Uh, Triantha occidentalis, the western false asphodel. Okay. Right. It's a wildflower. Tell us, I, tell us more about okay. it. Okay. So it's been known to science since the 19th century, and it's found uh, often not far from urban centers, uh, from central California mm-hmm. to Alaska. But okay. a group of researchers at the University of British Columbia have now shown it to be a carnivorous plant. What? Oh. Yes, nobody knew. I'm a little concerned because you said occidentalis. Occidentalis means Western. Occidentalis. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah, occident like better. occidental, oriental. Okay, yeah. I I I got concerned because I have um, I have an occidentalis plant in my room, and I'm just staring and it down. <laughs> okay. Were you afraid that it was going to eat you at night? No, not in the slightest. Feed me, Rachel. She totally, she totally is. <laughs> All I right. don't know what they do when I <laughs> <laughs> Getting this episode back on track. <laughs> uh, Good luck. Usually when people think about carnivorous plants, they, they think of something fairly dramatic, like the Venus flytrap being the best known, of mm-hmm. course. It's extra exciting because it, you know, closes suddenly trapping the little insect in the cage. But also well-known are pitcher plants, where insects fall into a little cup of liquid and are digested. Also sundews, which can wrap their sticky tentacles around their prey. So, by yes. By contrast, uh, Triantha occidentalis is a modest little plant. Uh, there's, uh, so it's, I, don't exa- I couldn't find out exactly how tall it is, um, but there are some blade-like leaves at the base of the plant, a uh, little bit like a, like a lily. Daylily, and then a single long stem that supports a cluster of small white flowers. And people had long noted that the stem had small sticky hairs on it in which small insects sometimes became trapped, but Hmm. they were considered to be purely a defensive adaptation. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, It did make some people curious, though. Um, especially combined with the fact that the plants live in boggy areas. That should also be a clue. Yes. So about five years ago, some curious scientists did a little genetic analysis and found that this plant was missing a specific gene that 
it's complicated, but it kind of tweaks how photosynthesis is done. And typically this gene is missing okay. in carnivorous plants. So the fact that this one was oh, missing it Whoa. was suggestive. That's very, so cool. very suggestive. Yes. Ah. I didn't know you were going to do such a suggestive episode. No, it they're is. Doing, they're like Scooby-Dooing their way to finding this uh, little carnivorous plant that's always been there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, our chief investigator for this study was Chanchi Lin at the University of British Columbia. And um, they worked with colleagues to figure out whether or not Triantha was really carnivorous or not. So Mm. they were able to tag fruit flies with nitrogen 15, which is a slightly heavier Mm. isotope of nitrogen. They fed them a diet high in nitrogen 15. So the, the fruit flies became supercharged with N15. I wonder what supercharged fruit flies would look like with nitrogen. Just, just a like tiny bit heavier, heavier, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are more that, appealing. That's fair. Very, very small amount. Um, so they let the fruit flies get trapped oh, by wow. the plant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yep. Okay. okay. Power <laughs> through there. Trapped through by the plant. Yeah. These slightly heavier fruit flies. <laughs> and they were able to show that uh, this heavier isotope was taken up by the plant's tissues. Very cool. Okay. Uh, yeah. And they also found an enzyme on the stem that is typically used by carnivorous plants to help digest their prey. There it so, is. So, slam dunk. Um, so it's pretty cool. What is really weird about this plant, though, is that the insect trapping stem is very close to the flowers. So wow. normally right. carnivorous plants try to keep their traps far away from their flowers. Why? Right. Pollinators. Because you, you don't want to trap the pollinators. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would be not good if your pollinators uh, get eaten by you. It would be anti the point. Just so. <laughs> but uh, the researchers think that Triantha may avoid this problem by, by having such small, relatively weak, sticky trapping hairs. So they're strong enough to catch very small insects like fruit flies, small beetles. Heavy fruit flies, yeah. Yeah, heavy fruit flies. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, I'm so full of nitrogen. <laughs> I'll just rest on this sticky stem. Oh. It's but like, it's, us, it, it's us after Thanksgiving dinner, you know, all the turkey. Yes. But uh, the bigger, the bigger insects don't right. get trapped. Like the bees, the butterflies, the pollinators don't get stuck. Okay. Nice. They think. So another okay. amazing thing okay. is that this species is part of a whole group of plants that was not at all previously known to be carnivorous. So it's an entirely new lineage. So really? that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it can also... Nice. Awesome. Yeah, it can also kind of potentially show how carnivorous, uh, I was going to say behavior, I don't know if you can say behavior about a plant, how carnivory can evolve uh, independently in different plant families. I, I, I knew you were going to pull out the word carnivory. <laughs> I didn't, word. but I love it. I saw it coming a mile away. But you can also start to see how carnivorous traps might have evolved just from defensive mm-hmm. hairs. In various plants. So it's very cool discovery all around. Awesome. When did they make that discovery? Well, the paper was just published uh, this year. 
oh, so this is all so recent. We're on the cutting edge. This is amazing. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I try I to keep up science. on the science news. It's so good. That's that's honestly so exciting. Yeah. And I, I um, was reading somewhere else in my research that they're like, since the year 2000, um, they, they just keep discovering new carnivorous plants in various huh. areas and different parts of the plant kingdom. So huh. they keep turning up in unexpected places. Maybe you'll find one. We should start, we should start expecting it, I guess. Yeah. You never, That's... you never do expect those carnivorous plants. No one, yeah, no one expects plant carnivory. <laughs> Chief weapon of surprise. <laughs> See, that should be the episode title. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Oh man! All well, right, thank you. Uh, yep, that's what I have on carnivorous plants this time. And when we come back from the break, it's going to be Kirk. I'll start off my uh, my story this week with a quote from Aristotle. Going way back. How highbrow of you. Yes, <laughs> Aristotle. Uh, this is from his... Uh... Uh-oh, we've lost Rachel to the giggles. <laughs> Who knew it was so easy? Uh, this is from his treatise on earth sciences. Uh, so he, to, to set this up, he's talking about water and about concepts of freezing. And he says, okay. The fact that water has previously been warmed contributes to its freezing quickly. Or so it cools sooner. Hence, many people, when they want to cool hot water quickly, begin by putting it in the sun. So the inhabitants of Pontus, when they encamp on the ice to fish, and in parentheses, they cut a hole in the ice and then fish. Those people who don't understand ice fishing. Uh, (laughs) They pour warm water around their reeds that it may freeze the quicker, for they use the ice like lead to fix the reeds. Uh, now, I'm not talking about ice fishing this week. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm talking about freezing, and uh, which coincidentally is what you do when you ice fish. But uh, I think Aristotle's full of it. A little bit. Yeah. So, so, yeah, uh, very much. Well, you know, you might think that, but similarly, the great thinker Francis Bacon said, "quote We should also deal with the preparation of substances to receive cold. For example, slightly warm water." will freeze more easily than water, which is altogether cold, and so on. And then also in his essay on meteorology, René Descartes says, we can also see by experiment that water, which has been kept hot for a long time, freezes faster than any other sort, because, of, because those of its parts which can least cease to bend evaporate while it is being heated. He had some weird ideas about how molecules and things work in there, but... Um, Little bit. There is this persistent idea uh, in many cultures uh, around the world throughout history that hot water freezes faster than cold water. Okay. Which is strange. I don't like that. Well, right? I don't but that's like what makes it. it strange, right? And that's what's made it this intriguing, yeah. this intriguing thought. Like, could this be true that hot water freezes faster than cold water? And why would that be? Uh, this does have a name. Uh, in modern times, we call it the Mapemba effect. Uh, and it was named after a Tanzanian schoolboy na- whose last name was Mapemba. Uh, this was back in uh, the 1960s, uh, where this kind of started. It was kind of a fun story. 
is I believe he was in secondary school. And for a class, like a cooking type class, uh, they decided to make ice cream. And all the kids had to mix up all their, you know, the cream and the sugar and all those ingredients and Mm -hmm. place it into a freezer. And he got a little bit of a late start compared to some other kids. And so when it came time to put them in the freezer, uh, his was still like hot because they had had to heat all the, um, you know, to melt the sugar and things like that or whatever it was they were doing. Um, right. And so he was also apparently worried about there not being enough freezer space at the school for everybody to put theirs in. So he kind of panicked and put his in the freezer while it was still like hot out of the pan, which is a big no, no. Okay. You're supposed Ooh. to let it cool down to room temperature it, first. And ever, and yeah, a lot of people just, are, so that way it, are kind of like, dude, that's not, that's not going to uh, take yours forever to freeze compared to everyone else's. Well, also, it raises the temperature of the well, freezer. Yeah, it's not real great for the freezer either, yeah, right? It's, it's, You're making it work no, really hard. it's bad. <laughs> well, he went in to check on his, expecting like, oh, mine won't be probably ready. And to his shock, discovered that his had already frozen, while his classmates, who had put theirs in after theirs had cooled down to room temperature, uh, theirs were not yet frozen. And this was quite a oh. surprise to everybody uh, but a, yeah. reportedly the students also sold ice cream. And so over time they started to use this technique of putting it in the freezer hot so they could make their ice cream even faster and sell more because they could make it faster. This was an ongoing oh, thing. ice cream. Weird. They were doing. And uh, by the time Mapemba was mm. in like high school, essentially, um, he, one of his mm-hmm. teachers brought in a visiting physics professor and uh, at the end, the professor was, you know, you don't have any questions. And he had, he's like, yes, I have a question. He's like, how come we see this effect that when we put things in the freezer when they're hot, they will freeze faster than when they're cold. And he had some evidence and whatnot. And instead of sort of laughing right. him off and being like, no, 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 silly boy, this, this can't be right. He was like, huh, I, I can't think of any reason why. That would be true. It seems to violate the laws of physics, uh, but we should <laughs> just a we should test that. He was intrigued. This kind of idea kept come, kind of stuck in his head. He got kind of intrigued by it. Uh, a number of years later, when uh, Mapemba was in college, he was still talking with this professor, and they said, "Let's collaborate on a research project." So they tested this out. They prepared all these samples, and they and they, and they froze them, and figured out how long it took them to freeze, and they published a now kind of famous paper. Uh, the, the, the two of them together on the effects of that temperature has on freezing. And it's been known now as the Mapemba effect when you see this. So it's a truly amazing story because it seems to violate, like we said, everything we know about physics. There is a problem with this concept of the Mapemba effect. It turns out it is incredibly difficult to actually test. And it doesn't sound yeah. like it'd be that hard, right? You just put stuff in and put hot stuff in and cold stuff in and see which one freezes first, right? That well, seems simple, is it in but the si- it's not. Wouldn't they still interact in the same freezer? Like, but you could test it in separate freezers easily enough. But you then test there's... a separate feature. But the problem is that we don't even really have a good definition of what the Mapemba effect is. So yeah. sure, there's a general idea that water freezes faster when it's hot. But what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the time for the water to reach zero degrees centigrade? 
or is it the time for an ice layer to form across the top, the top, or is it the time that it takes for the entire container of water to freeze solid? Like there is no official definition for what the Mapemba effect even is. So when you go to test oh. it, you're like, well, wait mm -hmm. a minute, what exactly am I actually even testing? And there's so many variables at play. How hot does the water need to be? How long are you supposed to keep it hot? Is it just you bring it to boiling and boom, we're ready to go? Or is it what if you boil the water all day or for an hour? Like, or keep it at a certain temperature for a long time? Does that change things about the amount of dissolved gases in the water? Like, there's all kinds of things that can change. Um, does it just have to be just water or do ice cream ingredients being added like cream and sugar make a difference? Uh, are the two samples in the same type of container? Does the container depth matter? Are there tiny imperfections on the sides of the container that you can't see that are nucleation sites mm -hmm. that makes ice crystals start to grow in one faster than the other? So can you even guarantee that your two containers are identical, even right. if they look identical? Does the surface area matter? Does the type of cooling matter? Like, are we cooling them down by being in just cold air? Or is the container in contact with a cooling plate or a cold, like, icy surface within the freezer that's affecting the actual, like, how much contact area is right. on there? Is the warm container, when it goes in, melting an, a, an icy shelf, which is then creating a greater contact area so you get more contact cooling? Like, there's so many variables when you get right into it, mm. that it becomes very, very difficult to actually test. And I think it's a great yeah. example, a great thought experiment to think about how do we actually test something because something can seem so easy and straightforward when you first think about it. Like, oh, we just put two containers of water in a freezer, see which one freezes first. But when you're actually trying to test science and look at all those variables, it can get extremely complicated very quickly. And that's what happens when people have tried to test this. Uh, there are literally hundreds of different variables that have to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. And um, part you of the... You have to uh, account for those variables. Otherwise, like, you're going to get... Someone's going to point at you. Another scientist is going to be like, <laughs> what are you doing? You forgot about this. What if this... Well, that's how science works. Yeah. This is how science works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, do you consider that's like that scientific question? Mm -hmm. Um and when we look at a lot of the experiments that have been done around the Mapemba effect, what we find is that they really did not necessarily carefully control for a lot of these variables. Mm. Now, okay. lots of time has been spent trying to recreate the initial experiments that showed this effect to be real. And many people have tried to come up with plausible explanations for why it could be happening, trying to explain mm -hmm. the, this, you know, some uh, hypotheses behind what would explain those initial experiments. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, perhaps they speculate that the hotter water uh, evaporates and radiates away heat faster because it is more likely to evaporate um, you know, when it's in there. And perhaps the cold water has more dissolved gases or, and that is gonna affect the rate that it freezes. I also talked about like the hot water melting uh, ice around the contact surface of the, the freezer and that somehow conducting more heat away quicker. Maybe uh, it's more likely because the the hotter water has more energy to it and it more able and willing to shift to a different state of matter. Yeah, people have been looking at all kinds of like really tiny, tiny effects and could 
could some of these things kind of add up? And if it, it can, it tells us new things about water. And to be clear, we are still learning new things about water and ice to this day. It's still something scientists are studying quite a lot because there's a lot of strange things that happen. Uh, there are many ideas about what could be causing this, but there was an analysis published in 2016 by um, Burridge and Linden in uh, Nature Magazine's Scientific Reports. Uh, so it's a scientific kind of uh, study, and it was called Questioning the Mapemba Effect. Hot water does not cool more quickly than cold. They're pretty adamant right there in the title of their paper. Yeah. Uh, mm. I thought this, this, uh, this paper does a really good job, at least in my mind, of detailing that there are flaws in many of the studies done. And when the data is actually properly analyzed from quality studies, the Mapemba effect sadly seems to disappear and hmm. be simply a popular myth. But I'm still open-minded. I mean, people have proposed some really interesting reasons why it may be true. And what we really need is carefully designed and controlled experiments that show a measurable and repeatable effect. And what this study showed is that they could not repeat it and neither could anyone else uh, once you controlled for variables. Hmm. And uh, that's the cool thing about science, though. Like, if other studies show up, I'm always ready to change my mind. Uh, for now, I'm going to consider this one a persistent, strange-by-nature myth. Uh, mm -hmm. The world is truly full of weird, strange effects. I think this one, you know, is probably going to turn out to be observer bias or not carefully designed experiments in the end. Uh, but I will say, like all things in science, I am I'm happy to be proved wrong. Because that's it's that's, the best when you get proven it's my wrong. favorite thing to prove wrong because you're like, oh my gosh, the world knows more than it knew before, and now I know more than I knew before, and I know that I was wrong before, and I'm always happy to be corrected and, and change my mind. That's how science works. You have to be ready to take all of your preconceived notions, and when the evidence actually shows to the, something to the contrary of what you know, your maybe your dearly held belief is, you go, well, shoot. All right, time to change. <laughs> so, uh, the Pemba effect, you know, I, you know, I, I think it's probably a myth that is a quirk of, uh, you know, how some of the experiments were set up, or some just like bias uh, in terms of how we were observing the results. Mm -hmm. But it is intriguing, and even if it turns out to be wrong, scientists have spent a lot of time doing some really good thinking about um, how it could be possible. And uh, trying to, those are never worthless um, exercises to do, to like oh, imagine yeah. um, how things would be possible. Because sometimes it, even when an initial thing ends up being wrong, maybe some of your thinking on something led you to make a, discover, a different discovery that you never would have done if you had not been researching a hypothesis that turned out to be incorrect. Yeah. Oh, I love cool. Science. Well, That's so cool. Thanks, Kirk. What a neat story. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of fun one. Yeah. Thanks, Kirk. Well, that's that's all we have for this week. But you know what? Next uh, next week, episode fifty. Episode Ooh. fifty. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert: We're not really doing anything particularly special. Nah. No. Nope. But we do want you to listen. So we'll see everyone yes. next week. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. 
It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.